Welcome back to Jazz United, everyone. This is Greg Bryant, host of Jazz After Hours on listener-supported WBGO. And this is Nate Chenin, the editorial director at WBGO. We like to get together and uh, talk about happenings in the musical community. And uh, this is a product of our WBGO studios. And uh, man, we're going to have fun today getting some more interaction than normal. And that's a good thing. You have been hearing uh, a snippet of the Pat Metheny composition Question and Answer from his album Trio Live with Bill Stewart and Larry Grenadier. And the reason for that is that uh, this is our mailbag episode. Mm -hmm. We put out a call and asked y'all what you want us to talk about, um, questions you want answered. And we're here for that and we're here for you. So that's what we're doing this episode. That's right, man. We've got some good ones, and uh, we also want to uh, introduce you uh, formally to our producer for the show, Trevor Smith. He's going to help us here with the mailbag. What's going on, Trevor? Hey, guys. How you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm going to be doing my best Roz impression from Frasier. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You, you, you definitely have that Roz energy. I feel like it's, all, it's always going to be okay with you behind the glass. I appreciate that. So uh, we got some really fantastic questions from all over the world, across the country, and uh, even one from Colombia. Well, before we jump into that, if you'll permit me this indulgence, uh, I'm going to claim it. In our last episode, our, our, our previous episode, which was all about Lee Morgan, um, Greg, you mentioned something, and I realized that I missed an opportunity for a follow-up. Oh, so okay. if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you the first question here. <laughs> okay. Um, we were talking about the great Benny Maupin. Uh, shout out to Benny Maupin mm -hmm. um, if he's listening. You said that Blue Note Records not signing Benny Maupin was one of five mistakes that the label has made. Mm -hmm. And and I, I was sitting there nodding and processing what you said. And it only occurred to me later, what are the other four? <laughs> So, you know, we can't we can't list four. We don't have that much time. But why don't you pick one? Maybe we'll spread this out over multiple episodes. But <laughs> sure. na name another mistake that sure. Blue Note Records has made over its, uh, you know, 75 plus years uh, or 80. Has it been 80 years? Yeah, I don't know. I'm terrible. I'm terrible with the math. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, what, where else did they drop the ball? Well, first of all, I want to say since the cradle, man, um, Blue Note has been symbolically uh, my favorite uh, label historically. And what they're doing now, I feel like is really great. But man, when you really comb the history, you see a cat like uh, Tina Brooks. And to know that he recorded four albums over his relationship with the label and only one of them, that is True Blue, came out during his lifetime um i would urge our listeners to go check out back to the tracks um as well as uh, minor move in my opinion those sessions are just as good just as impressive as true blue was um, now we know uh tina had uh his issues um during that time but other players did too and alfred seemed to really latch on to them so i don't really know the backstory there but I think Tina Brooks, given appropriate coverage, uh, would have been just as uh, herald as someone like Hank Mobley or perhaps Stanley Turrentine. He was an amazing composer, a unique stylist in that kind of middleweight tenor range. And uh, I think that's a real mistake 
to his legacy that um, only one of his four recorded albums came out during his life. You heard it here. Mistake number two, the great Tina Brooks. Uh, keep it, keep it right here with your uh, Jazz United <laughs> oh, subscription because I, I think I'm going to hit up Greg for more of these as we go. Oh my goodness! <laughs> All right, so with that, why don't we, why don't we toss it to to you, Trevor? Uh, what do we have? Sure. All right, our first question comes from Mike in Chicago, and now the other week you guys had the episode about going back to the club, mm-hmm. so this is a very appropriate question. Mike asks, what are some of your favorite lesser-known venues around the world, particularly outside of New York? And follow-up, what's your go-to drink at the club? Mm. Greg, you you host a feature called In the Club on Jazz After Hours, so I feel like you have to take this first. Wow. Hey, Mike, thanks for writing in, my friend. Um, There are three clubs that I'd actually put forward. Um, And when I think about venues... You know, as a listener, even as a player, you know, what do you want to experience? What's the vibe? What's the level of hospitality that you want to uh, uh, have in your experience there? There are three that come to mind right away. I'll shout out the Hometown Club from Nashville, uh, Rudy's Jazz Room. That's a great place to uh, check out some live music. Um, Duet Jazz Room in Tulsa is also fantastic from, you know, the amazing dressing rooms facilities, you know, from the uh, wait staff, uh, the capacity of the place. It's a really comfy, great sounding room. Also want to shout out uh, Cafe Vivace in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, that's a really great spot too for the music that's coming along. They do some really awesome live streams. Um, drinking wise, not really much of a drinker, so it may be ginger beer this time, maybe root beer next. But um, what about you, Nate? Those are great. Uh, I don't I don't know those rooms aside from Rudy's. So uh, thank you for that. I'm, you know, I'm going to just go with a place that I know very, very well. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, For a little over a decade, I lived in Beacon, New York, uh, Hudson Valley town, about 60 miles north of Manhattan. And um, not far from there is a place called the Falcon. Uh, And Greg, you and I have seen some music at the Falcon and you've played there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but listen, I, I'm actually going to endorse cause the Falcon's a little bit on the radar. Um, yeah. I'm going to endorse a place that's, that's more obscure. Um, and, and was literally just down the street, uh, from my, from my house. And this is a, a room called Quinn's, uh, hmm. which is very special. Um, the, the thumbnail history is that Quinn's for more than 40 years was a greasy spoon diner on main street yeah. in Beacon. And the woman mm. who who owned the place was behind the griddle. She was 87 years old. Great blueberry mm. pancakes. Uh, and then she decided <laughs> yeah. to retire, you know, so she sold the yeah. joint. And I began to hear rumblings in my new town, uh, my new adopted town of Beacon. Hey, they're going to open a music venue. And I was like, well, how are they going to do that? And the answer is they, they basically just converted the, the diner into a club created this incredible vibe. Um, So I saw, you know, thanks to the programming of Steve Ventura and James Keepnews, um, I've seen some amazing improvised music in that little room. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everyone from Nels Klein to Mary Halverson to Matt Wilson to Tim Byrne, uh, Joe McPhee, um, Mm -hmm. Jessica Williams, you know, just 
it's a great room. And the thing that I love about it, aside from, you know, how close it was, uh, this was a no cover room that had okay. such a vibe that people would come just to hang out without even mm -hmm. knowing who was playing. That's and great. That's it great. was sort of an old school situation in that way. You know, there was like a low hum mm -hmm. of conversation in the room. Maybe sometimes uh -huh. it wasn't so low, but, um, yeah. you know, I, I get that clubs have a quiet policy for a reason and I respect that, but I think there has to be a place in our, in our jazz culture mm -hmm. for a, a hang, you know, where, yeah. um, neighborhood folks and, and, you know, like, yeah, uh, college kids like can just come and like hang out and, and drink and, you know, eat ramen in this case. Um, and then the music sort of insinuates itself, you know, I feel like mm -hmm. if every, if every American town the size of Beacon, New York had a Quinn's, we wouldn't be talking about the travails of a touring jazz musician. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, that's my endorsement. And as far as what I, what I drink, it really, it is, it is very situationally dependent. Um, there are rooms that I associated with certain beverages. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> okay. I guess I'm a little high maintenance in some ways, but you know, when I was at the jazz standard, uh, you know, RIP, um, mm -hmm. they had a blue smoke ale that Brooklyn brewery made specifically for the club. So that was always, yeah. that was always a, a consideration. Um, mm -hmm. when I was at the Vanguard, depending on the time of year, I would often get a, a scotch, uh, yeah. neat, you know, so sometimes a room kind of has its own vibe that leads you in the direction of a certain, a certain form of tippling. Um, mm -hmm. that's so that's, I'll, I'll leave it there. Man, you mentioned two things there. Number one, the need for the circuit to come back. Mm -hmm. We definitely yep. need that on the touring scene. And then secondly, blueberry pancakes, man, mm, somebody yep. needs to to get that idea and, and make a venue around some, some hip pastries. <laughs> I didn't get to get out to the jazz bakery in Los Angeles yeah. when it was going. But yeah. man, that's that's an idea for you. Somebody out there, come on. All right, you guys are talking about the circuit. So let's, uh, let's take a location-specific question. Steve Lehman, and I think this is the Steve Lehman, from Los Angeles. It is. Hey, Steve. In his words, he's going to give you guys a gauntlet style question. Mm -hmm. Is LA now on par or nearly on par with New York City as a center for modern jazz in the United States? Honestly, I, I think Steve is trying to tell us um, in um, a very astute way that he feels that it is. So this um, is a comment in the form of a question? I, I, I think it is. <laughs> I, I, I think it is. I mean, um, to be honest with you, um, I have long appreciated um, the verve and zeal of the Los Angeles jazz scene, uh, even from the 1950s. You know, cats who were maybe even against the cool school, uh, like Hampton Hawes. Uh, Sonny Clark even did some time on the West Coast before he moved eastward. Uh, Curtis mm -hmm. Counts, even. Um, L.A. is just not a snooze town. It never has been. Um, I'll say this and I'll pass it to you, Nate. I would like to see more venues uh, in the metropolis that is Los Angeles. I think that's the only thing that L.A. is um, in need of. And that's not the musician's fault. There are places to play because musicians are making a way um, in large part. But um, 
that's the only thing in my trip out there, maybe four years ago, that I was kind of surprised that there weren't more uh, venues regularly um, or produced explicitly uh, for housing improvisational music. That's what I'd like to see more of. Mm. Well, I will disagree with you in one sense, because I don't think the venues are the only missing piece. Um, I think there's a, a pretty a pretty serious, you, you know, when we look at the question, right, let's look at the language of the question. Um, Steve asks if LA is on par with New York or close as a center for modern jazz. Now, if we're talking about the music and its production and the the concentration of people um, in a space, I, I think I think you could really make an argument. Um, but there is still um, a kind of um, a critical mass of of jazz media, of um, promoters and labels, and you know just the the entire sort of. Uh, industry infrastructure for the music is still largely centered in New York City. Um, and so I think the the example of Kamasi Washington and the West Coast Get Down is, is illustrative here um, because these are lifelong Angelinos who really developed a thing and they did it off the radar, on their own terms, in their own backyard. Um, but it really took a kind of um, crossing over to, you know, folks like me on the East Coast before this was recognized as like a, a significant thing. Now, I'm not saying that's the way it should work. And and things are changing, you know, as, as musicians get really um, sort of control their means of production with social media and with uh, band camp releases and, and what have you. I think there is an evolution happening there. But we are still in a place, and maybe this is just vestigial at this point, um, where you got to sort of make it in New York City to sort of graduate to that next level. Um, now, Greg, if you, don't, if you don't agree with me, please push back on that point. I have to give credit where credit is due. The get down showed us that they didn't have to come to New York to make it. And that's right. critical. And right. if there are more people that come with that mindset and with that state of mind, we might see something that'll undo 50 years of saying that New York is the place you have to come to. I will agree with you. You know, I wanted to be a part of the, the New York community for, for years, and I'm happy to, in this capacity, contribute to that. But there's a lot in the water out there in Los Angeles. And I think to sleep on that and to say that somehow they're not as um, uh, fortified as, oh, yeah. as somewhere like New York. I don't know, man. They're, they're, yeah, yeah. they're proving us. They're proving us wrong. Yeah, and I want to. I want to be clear. I'm not talking about um, the development of the music. I'm not talking about talent. I mean, um, and we've actually seen some notable. Um, I mean, Steve Lehman's a, is one of of a wave of musicians who've left New York for Los Angeles. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. There's some there's some heavy stuff happening out there. Um, to your point about venues, though, uh, at the end of December, uh, the Blue Whale shut down, True. and and I am not aware of anything that has been able to, you know, step in and fill that vacuum. And I don't expect we'll see that 
while the pandemic is still an ongoing concern the way it is. So, you know, we're going to have to kind of wait and see. Um, but in the meantime, musicians are doing their thing. And, and I think um, maybe we'll, we'll close on this note. Um, anyone who is not paying attention to what's coming out of Los Angeles is mm. not getting the picture. Right. The, the music is uh, the music that's that's uh, originating in L.A. And, and spreading from that locus is just too, it's too vital and it's too important right now. And, and it is in some quarters setting the agenda. So, I mean, credit where it's due. Absolutely true. All right, we've got a question from your hometown, Greg. Lagudos from Nashville asks, what is a group that you have seen that was great, but never recorded or released an album? That's an amazing question. Um, and I think about that often just, you know, by myself, um, in, in waking moments, sometimes even in dreams, <laughs> but, uh, man, there are so many bands Fortunately, uh, I've gotten to see a lot of music over the last, I'd say, 20 years um, that I felt should have been an album. Uh, one of them uh, being a particular lineup uh, with Dr. Lonnie Smith, Herlin Riley, and Russell Malone. And hmm. I've seen the doctor in many contexts. One of my favorite pairings, uh, two of them actually, had different guitar players being in the amazingly talented Peter Bernstein and Jonathan Kreisberg's hands, man, they really helped doc soar, but there was something about the symbiosis of that trio, Herlin, Russell Malone, and Dr. Lonnie, that was worthy of a, of a record and it never happened. And man, maybe there's still time. I don't know, but that's one answer that I would give you. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm kind of stumped here. Um, it's one of those situations where, um, I think there are just so many possibilities that I'm paralyzed. Um, I don't know. I mean, is it possible to kind of, is it possible to, to take a mulligan on this and come back to it? I've got to like, I've got to scour. Nah, my man, bank. you, you got to answer the question. I got to come nah, up with that, something. That's huh? not fair. That's not fair. It's, it's not, Be is it? Because you've seen, you've seen so much music, man. You've seen more music than I have. So yeah. I know, I know if, if you were, put your producer's hat on for a second, man. <laughs> what was a room where you walked into and was like, hey, man, this is the first cut on the record. That's the last cut. I wish oh, I could man. relive this moment on it vinyl is, or on you know, CD. I am, I am, I'm having a hard time. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, it's funny. When, when, when I think about... Um, moments that that I felt really grateful to to just be in the space. One thing that comes mm -hmm. to mind right away um, is a duo. So so there was a, a blessed period um, right around the turn of the century when uh, I guess it was the very late 90s. Um, Cecil Taylor was playing a lot in New York um, and there was okay. a stretch of of about a I don't know six to nine months where I saw Cecil in three different uh, duos with drummers. Oh my! I saw him with Max Roach 
up at Columbia. Ooh, yeah. I saw him yeah. with Tony Oxley at Tonic. Okay. Yeah. And I saw him with Elvin Jones at the Blue Note. Oh my God. And oh my each God. one of these was mind blowing, you know, mm-hmm. just, just mm-hmm. on a whole other level. Um, and it was fascinating to see them in such short succession because the differences were, were illuminating. You know, you really mm-hmm. got to see the way that, that Cecil, um, you know, w- the cues that he took from his, from his imp- improvising partners and uh-huh. these three very different drummers providing him with different information, you know? Yeah. Um, so this is a long walk around the block to get to this answer. Um, Cecil and Elvin. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they they recorded together with Dewey Redman on a, a wonderful right. a wonderful right. album titled Momentum Space. But yeah. there was something that Cecil and Elvin got to as a duo that was really special, and hmm. a lot of it had to do with the the beauty and the grace and the intensity of Elvin's mm-hmm. ear, mm-hmm. Um, the way that he changed his own sort of signature, um, Hmm. rhythmically, you know, like he was, he was extraordinarily sensitive. He played, I think most of the set on mallets, you know, Mm -hmm. like on timpani mallets, right. Mm -hmm. A lot of work on his toms and cymbals using these mallets. And it was very color first, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's possible that there is a recording, uh, of these two together that I am just not aware of. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I think about an alignment that I would like to have seen properly documented, that's one thing that comes very quickly to mind. I love that answer, man. Um, And I talked to someone that was at that same show. And it's funny, your description was spot on to what they said. Yeah, that that should have been a record, man. (laughs) Oh, my God. See, that's a that's a that's a great answer. (laughs) It took me a minute. Long walk around the block. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Andy Ray from Athens, Ohio, asks, John Coltrane brought the soprano sax into the spotlight in the early 1960s. What less common instrument do you predict will be utilized in Black American improvisational music more frequently in the next 10 years? Wow. I've got a quick answer. Go ahead, Nate. Um, Yeah. You know, I I think so much uh, of this has to do with the power of a of an eloquent example, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The reason that Coltrane's soprano playing was so influential is because he, he did something new with that sound and, and demonstrated sort of a new language on this instrument. You know, it was, Mm -hmm. it was like connected to Sidney Bechet, but it was, it was something different. So I think that we now have a, an extremely um, potent example, um, of harp playing in, mm. in in sort of um, in the African American musical expression, uh, I'm speaking, of course, about Brandy Younger, who we have uh, mentioned before. We devoted an episode to her duo album with Desron mm. Douglas, but you know, Brandy released her major label debut this year on Impulse, and you get the very clear sense from her uh, and her expression that. Uh, she's nowhere near finished exploring, Mm -hmm. 
you know she's mm-hmm. she, she's kind of just ramping up you know like she she keeps growing as an artist she is so open and she is she, you know so so incredibly proficient on the instrument and so mm-hmm. i think that that is going to lead um quite a few people to to turn to that instrument um and and continue to explore its possibilities um carrying on that lineage that flows through Dorothy Ashby and Alice Coltrane and now Brandy Younger. Um, we'll see. Yeah. I, I look forward to finding out. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, it's a great answer. And I believe I have been stumped and I'm trying to work my way into this question because there are several instruments that are kind of outliers that you wonder, you know, will they catch on? Uh, one answer might be the iwi. Um that's uh, sort of a somewhat trivialized instrument of the 1980s, but in, in a player's hands like, you know, Dana Stevens, uh, it becomes a tool for amazing expression. Uh, I've seen a couple of other woodwind players doubling on that instrument. I'm also seeing something interesting. Um, I'm seeing a bit more electric bass being used throughout ensembles by amazing acoustic players who are coming out as, as doublers, but we're also seeing that instrument move more into the forefront, you know, as a permanent instrument uh, without the use of an additional uh, upright bass. So maybe it's going that way. I don't know. Um, It's anybody's guess. I think that as a, as an electric bass player, you might have a little bit of selection bias there, Mr. Bryant, but (laughs) I am, uh, (laughs) but no, I, uh, I, I think I, I think I hear what you're saying. Um, I think, I think, you know, the, the hangups that the jazz community had for quite some time, you know, certainly in the seventies and eighties around the electric Mm -hmm. bass, I think, I think those have largely fallen away. Uh, I don't know if that's, I really don't know if that's true, but, you know, Bob Cranshaw used to get so much grief uh, and Sonny mm-hmm. Rollins used to get grief over the mm-hmm. fact that that, you know, Cranshaw played an electric bass with with Sonny, you know? Yeah. Um, people just didn't like it. They didn't. They're like, mm-hmm. why is he doing that? Um, yeah. And I feel like that's a that's a sensibility that we've maybe outgrown. Um, yeah. Yeah. I hope it's, you know, well, it's funny you mentioned him. Um, cause in the one conversation I had with him, uh, he was staunch about it, man. He's like, a bass is a bass. He's like, man, yeah. I, I swing. He's like, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not hung up on all that stuff. That's up to everyone else to figure out. But with that resolution, I think he helped to really, you know, tear down the wall of, Hey man, this is what it's going to be. Love it or hate it. And making people decide, Hey man, and, and hearing how good he played it. You know, he made a lot of um, converts with that. And, you know, you think about some of the um, some of the like really steady working bands of the last 10 to 15 years, some of the most mm-hmm. acclaimed. I mean, the bandwagon. Yeah. Taurus Mateen very rarely plays an upright acoustic bass at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've mm-hmm. seen him do it, but, you know, mm-hmm. his, his axe is generally uh, an electric bass guitar. And, and the mm-hmm. same is true for Derek Hodge. Um, yeah. you know, playing with, with Robert Glasper, uh, in various contexts and, and with others, you know, and so we've got these, these really visible models of, of people who get, you know, full expression on this instrument. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one That's would ever, right. no one would say there's something missing here when they hear right. these guys. Mm-hmm.
Finally, we have a question from Fort Lauderdale. Paul Horton asks, what are some albums, shows, films, books, etc., that you're looking forward to in the remaining half of 2021? Thank you for that, Paul. Um, Paul is someone I, I believe, I believe we follow each other on social media. So we're, we're sort of digital acquaintances. Um, That's my dude, man. Yeah, well, that's. I mean, Paul is Paul is in your circle, Greg. I, I need to meet yeah. this guy. Um, yeah, you have to. I do. Uh, but I, I, I'm I'm sorry. I'm going to have to let you down, Paul, just for a little while, <laughs> because it's it's for a good reason, though. Um, our our next episode of Jazz United uh, is going to be entirely devoted to the WBGO 2021 Fall Preview. Yes, and we're going to be we're going to be talking in depth about some of the stuff that we are most excited about um, for the the remainder of the year, and and so uh, I don't want to steal our own thunder, um, mm-hmm. and and I I will just ask that you be patient uh, for a couple of weeks uh, because we got a lot we got a lot coming, and yeah, we're, we're excited about it. Uh, you know, I guess suffice it to say. Uh, that we're sitting on some good stuff. Uh, it's it's, it's going <laughs> to yeah. be a good uh, uh, Q3 into Q4 of 2021 yeah. on the release front. And he'll be listening. Paul uh, listens to all of our episodes. And so uh, I think he's going to be pleased uh, with many of our selections. And we hope that many others of you will be as well. Thank you for participating. Um, it's been awesome. Maybe we should do this again. It's great to have Trevor here. And uh, again, just to see your feedback is really awesome. Um, I would encourage those of you who are ardent fans of the show, share it with somebody, you know, that's how this village grows, you know, um, one-to-one and you guys have been really awesome with, with feedback and encouragement. We like doing this. And if you are not yet a WBGL member, consider becoming one it's shows like this. And, and most of our other programming is made possible uh, by your support. So uh, if you want to do that right now, you can just go online, wbgo.org support. You can give your tax deductible contributions to ensure that WBGO Studios and our broadcast day uh, is fortified by your support. And we thank you. And hey, everyone, before we go, uh, we are not going to do the conventional This I Dig segment this week, uh, not in full fashion, um, because as our producer points out, our whole episode, we've been talking about stuff we dig. However, uh, yeah. uh, so. I, I want to just um, throw some light in the direction of the saxophonist Kevin Sun, who has an album coming out on August 29th, which would have been the 101st uh, birthday of the great Charlie Parker. And this mm-hmm. album is called, uh, I guess you'd call it Love Bird. Um, it's stylized with the, uh, the sort of... Um, text emoji symbol for a kiss, uh, you know, a little, uh, yeah. little uh, more than sign and the number three. Um, mm-hmm. So I think you'd call it love bird. And it's a, you know, it is literally that it's a love letter. Um, and it is a, a reimagining of Charlie Parker's music uh, for a very contemporary ensemble that includes Adam O'Farrell on trumpet um, mm. and Max Light on guitar. Uh, 
it's a it's a really um, it's a cool project. And uh, if you follow Kevin Sun on social media, uh, which I also recommend you do, uh, then you know he's been he's been deep deep in the shed with Bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a this is something I just wanted to shout out. And also, you know, on August 29th, take a moment, spend some time with Charlie Parker's music. Uh, he is eternal, and uh, his birthday is always uh, a, a good moment for that. Man, that's really interesting too um, that he chose Adam O'Farrell because um, another bird tribute that was really awesome was the one that uh, Redress Mahanthropa did yeah. a few years back, and I believe bird that calls. Adam was on that as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. fantastic record. I'm looking forward to Kevin Sons too. That's really cool, Nate. Right on, Kevin. Once again, Jazz United is a production of WBGO Studios. Uh, Trevor Smith is our producer uh, and our Roz for this episode. Um, And uh, our theme song is United, composed by Newark's own Wayne Shorter and performed by Newark's own Woody Shaw. We will see you next time when we dig into the fall preview. Please subscribe and we'll catch you soon. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.